welcome again to Sacktown Talks. Today we have one of our favorite guests joining us again today, uh, Mike Gatto, former assemblyman from 2010 to 2016, joining us today. Mike, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's going us. well. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, you had a burst pipe this morning, so... Uh, I, I did, but uh, the show must go on. Exactly, exactly. A true professional, a true professional. So, Mike, as you know, uh, you know, here we are in August, coming up to the end of session, and you know, I wanted to talk to you about kind of your memories and experiences, kind of end of session hijinks. Um, so, you know, it seems like everyone always has a great idea after the deadlines have already passed. Like right now, during this this month, of you know, people are off back home. You know, lobbyists, special interests, members come up with these great ideas. Yet, you know, all the deadlines have passed, all the committees have been heard, and, you know, you get this 30-day crunch where, you know, people try to do, you know, gut amends and things like that. So kind of want to go go over that with you and, and talk about that and kind of some of your experiences and memories in, in dealing with these. Sure. So I'll give you both sides of the gut and amend debate, right? So um, the uh, one side says that, you know, these are totally improper. The rules uh, apply uh, to, and the rules provide for a committee process that provides for a public vetting of a bill and a thorough vetting of an idea, and that these rules date back centuries and that the legislature must follow them. And uh, you know, when someone then does something after the fact, it, um, it tends to uh, show that those rules don't apply or don't apply to the party in power. And for those reasons, there used to be even rules that applied to get amends. There used to be a germaneness requirement, as you know. It had to be... Uh, you know something that was done typically in the same code area so you couldn't take a bill that had to do with utilities and make it about criminal justice or vice versa mm -hmm. um, and they were very very rarely allowed and uh, the people who hate men's they decry that all of this has changed and that it's a horrible abuse of the process to that you know a lot of the politicians myself included sometimes counter and say that um you know a gut amend is something that has a role in the legislative process and i'll tell you why my friends on local city councils, they have a sort of an ongoing legislative process. There is no legislative calendar. Right. So if something happens in that city, they're nimble enough to react to it. Let's say, um, let's say a city faces a wildfire and they need to tweak an ordinance that provides certain steps for recovery or certain steps for suing the utility or something. Um, they can do that in the middle of July and they can order the city attorney to draft that ordinance you know, in late July and they can pass it in August. The legislature does not have that type of nimbleness. And some have argued, myself included, that in the modern world, having some degree of flexibility makes sense. I can tell you that you know California's problems don't take a break just because it's the summer and just because uh, we're late in the legislative year. So I think the get and amend process does have a role in the legislature of today. Yeah, and just kind of, I, I guess, go back. Let, let's, I guess, examine the process. So the deadlines have passed, You know, all committees have been heard. Uh, we're coming up to what appropriations time. Um, so kind of right now, if, if a member has a good idea, they want to do a bill kind of what's the process of, of, you know, doing a gut and mend and, you know, doing one of these last minute bills. Sure. Well, you typically have to find a bill that's already made it to the other house and uh, you then uh, submit amendments uh, in whatever committee is there. Cause a, a committee is typically the place to take the amendments. Occasionally they're even done on the floor. And then that bill then has to go back through the, uh, through, you know, well, it has to proceed through the second house, of course, but then it goes back on a concurrence vote. And in theory, you know, it's just another change that has occurred to the bill during the process, and it would be subject to a regular concurrence vote. The reality, of course, is that the bill has substantially changed after the deadline. 
And of course, you have a situation where the committees may or may not, the subject matter committees may or may not have the ability to thoroughly vet the idea. Right. And, you know, I guess, you know, there, there are no rules until there are rules, right? There's always rule waivers and things like that. Kind of, I guess in your experience, like, you know, you know, talking with leadership, uh, getting, you know, two third vote, uh, you know, vote waivers, um, you know, kind of when, when does that come into play and kind of how hard are those to achieve? Sure. So certain bills that are um, past uh, a wide variety of deadlines require, as you noted, a rule waiver. And that typically occur, well, that has to occur on the floor and it requires a two thirds vote. And so, you know, when people talk about one of the biggest changes of um, the supermajority era, where Democrats, of course, have supermajorities in both houses in Sacramento, it's really not to pass legislation or taxes. As you know, there's always going to be a few holdouts who don't want to vote for the taxes. But it's more that they can waive the rules whenever they want. And uh, they can, you know, say that, well, you know, this, this bill has passed this deadline or it's passed this deadline. It hasn't gone through this committee, blah, blah, blah. But we're going to waive that. We're going to waive that by a two-thirds uh, supermajority vote. And these are what are called procedural votes. There is a long tradition in Sacramento that procedural votes, even if you're objective, even if you, you know, completely disagree with the principle, that you follow the leadership on them. You follow the speaker if you're an assembly member and you follow the president approach in the Senate and you give your courtesy a procedural vote. So these, these procedural votes almost never fail. That, ena that enables the party with the supermajority to waive the rules. And I guess, you know, kind of it's interesting because you've served, I guess, under both times when there wasn't a supermajority and when, when there was, I guess, I guess, do you recall, you know, procedural votes failing before the supermajority? Oh yeah, you know, um, the uh, before Democrats had a supermajority, it was um, pretty rare to get a rule waiver. You would obviously need to persuade a few Republicans that uh, that this had merit or it had need. In many cases, they would exact or extract some type of um, concession uh, in response to it. And it was a way really for certain Republicans to be relevant. Um, you know, I have always maintained that a portion of the legislature is always going to vote yes on a Democratic bill. Those are the more progressive members. A portion of the legislature is always going to vote no on a Democratic bill. Those are the more conservative Republicans. And it's the folks in the middle where the action is. Well, before the Democrats had a supermajority, there would be some Republicans who were in the middle. They were, for lack of a better word, in play. They could uh, you know, have a pretty profound effect on an outcome. And because of that, you know, I would submit that the legislature was a little more bipartisan, of course, before the big supermajorities. Interesting. And, and I guess, you know, during your time, what, in 2010, you know, I guess that was before some of the, the budget rules and things like that. I guess, do you recall, you know, before, you know, we had these budget surpluses and things like that, I guess, you know, budget fights and things like that going down to the wire in, in 2010 and 2011? Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, I, um, I point this out frequently, and um, and it's an important distinction, you know, for for people. Although I I, I have to give myself grief because I know I I point this out a lot, yeah, which is um I I got elected in a special election, and I actually got elected. You know, the the main people who took office in 2010 took office in December of 2010, and so it's a little confusing for some people. But I my election was in April, and then there was another one in June, and I took office shortly thereafter. And so I served under Governor Schwarzenegger, not just Governor Brown. Um, I served under the pre-Prop 26 rules. You know, I served under the, um, the you know, vastly different uh, compositions of the legislature at the time during that little half term that I had. 
So I had, you know, seven budgets votes instead of six. I had four sets of pins and four terms technically instead of three. But because of that, yeah, I saw a window. I, I bridged this weird era where I was there when you still required a supermajority for a budget vote. And uh, look, I sound like an old timer now, you know, talking about the, the old days, but, but you know, in, in my first couple of years up there, you know, we slept in the legislative chamber and, you know, Tom Amiano gave his famous joke, his famous remark about, you know, something about the last time he had slept with so many guys was, you know, back in the seventies or something in some, you know, whatever, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was very different before the reforms that made the budget a simple majority vote. Because at the time, unless you had a supermajority Democrats, which at last happened, I think, at Watergate, you needed the two parties to come together and agree on something. And so what is now a three-party deal, the leaders of both houses and the governor, was then a six-party, well, five-party deal. And so it was just, it was a vastly different era at the time. Right. And, and I guess, you know, in, in kind of bridging the, the time span that you've been there, like how, how did end of session change when all of a sudden the budget was taken care of months beforehand and, you know, it, it was just purely policy bills coming in at the end? Yeah. So, I mean, um, end of session, of course, has changed a great deal with the budget being different. But end of session, as you know, Jarrett, has always been end of session. There's always shenanigans. There's always pettiness. It might come as a shock to your viewers that politics is petty. And there are petty people in politics. And end of session, you know, you always have the drama. You have, uh, you know, um, the House versus Senate drama, the Assembly versus Senate drama, right. where, you know, people feel in one house that a certain house is messing with their bills and they haven't gotten fair, um, you know, hearings and such. You have member on member drama. In many cases, you have a powerful committee chairperson in one house who the members feel like have not treated them right in another house. And those things always come to a head at the end of session. At the end of session, people are tired. Uh, they are being pestered in every direction. And the bills are consequential. This is where the ideas that have been formed all year, now you got to do an up or down vote. What I would always tell people, though, is that, you know, every end of session, we would see it. You would see a situation where an assembly member would huddle with other assembly members and say, hey, you know, Senator so-and-so, chairperson so-and-so, really messed with my bill and gave me an unfair blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and then you'd say, well, what was the bill about? And then it would be something really stupid, actually. And you'd kind of laugh. But, right. but they'd say, well, you know, that chair didn't give me a fair, fair hearing. And so let's mess with his or her bills. And you know what? I can tell you that almost never amounted to anything. You know, I mean, the idea that, you know, let's say, uh, let's say a chairperson really did even mess with an assembly member's bill. But then that chairperson has a bill coming to the other house that, has to do with providing kids, you know, better dental care. I mean, do you really want to mess with that bill? Do you really want to make that a lesson for that senator? It, it, it happened, you know, there would often be these sort of manifestations of protests and manifestations of, you know, someone being very upset, but they almost never amounted to something. And so my attitude was always like, they're not worth doing. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess, you know, we, we have it from our perspective, you know, watching it or, you know, kind of being there in the hallways. But, you know, what's it like on the on the floor, you know, during these those, you know, final week where you guys are there late every night? Um, you know, some people are, are partying a little bit, maybe, uh, you know, things get tense or heated on the floor kind of what, what are some of your memories of, of that last week in session kind of, you know, going through the grind and, and dealing with the men? 
I, you know, the end of session, I have nothing but mostly fond memories for. You know, it, it really is the time of the year where lawmakers do what they got elected to do, which is to legislate. You are making your final manifestations of your support or your opposition to all of the wonderful ideas that have been proposed over the course of the year. And you're doing it on behalf of the district that elected you. And so I found it very exciting and very pure and very, you know, this is sort of like what we were there to do. But as you noted, you know, it is a chaotic, you know, process that, you know, obviously people have, have compared to sausage making where, you know, you'll have a debate where, you know, again, pre-COVID, maybe half of the members are not really listening. They're off the floor. They're in the other house trying to wrestle up votes for one of their bills, you know, and um, they maybe don't sit on the key policy committees that vetted that bill over the year. And so, yeah, there is a very sausagey component to it. And um, some members, as you note, have been staying out late or, you know, perhaps doing some other things. And, you know, it is always a very, very chaotic time. One of the, um, you know, way, members have different ways of dealing with tension. You know, one of the things that, that, um, that, that I would do, and I would do this with some of the members of the Republican caucus is we would, um, we would make up false cards of lobbyists that did not exist and, you know, write a note and uh, <laughs> go to the sergeants in, in the lobby and pass it to those members. And it would say like, you know, urgent request from, you know, Jim Smith, the lobbyists of the greater Modesto car dealership tire association <laughs> you know and every once in a while you'd have a member you know go running out there and be like oh my god you know i gotta talk to this person and um, that's how we we filled up a lot of the the dead time because there's a lot of time where you're just waiting around and nothing is happening you're waiting for bills to come from the other house or you're waiting for leadership to strike a deal and you're just sitting now obviously this has changed a little bit with covid but you know it's going to go back to what i remember and it's been like that for hundreds of years you know, that's funny. You know, you, you have one of the, you know, the great milestones of, of never missing a vote. Uh, I think you're one of the only members to never miss a vote. Kind of what, what was one of your secrets while, you know, everyone's, you know, focusing on other things. How did you never miss one or, or you know, pay attention enough? to? to well, so as, as my wife likes to point out, I even came to vote when I had swine flu and even when I had a broken rib. Um, but, uh, but I mean, look, I don't think that I did anything special. I really don't. I, I always object to that. I think lawmakers are there to cast a vote. We are there to put ourselves on the record. And my secret was less about paying attention, although that was very important. And it was more about actually wanting to be on the record for votes, wanting to cast an up or down vote. It is perceived in the etiquette of Sacramento that it is nicer if you take a walk and you don't actually you know, cast an affirmative or a, a, I don't know what the word would be, a negative no vote it is perceived that that is somehow nicer. Uh, but you try explaining that to, to a member of the public. You elected me to do a job. You elected me to manifest my viewpoint plus the district's viewpoint on any bill, on any idea. And yeah, I thought this bill was horrible. It was terrible. It was really the stupidest thing ever. So I took a walk, right? I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense then, right? And it never really made sense to me. So I tried to, you know, if I had an objection to a bill, I cast no vote. Whereas a lot of members feel like, you know, if they're out of the room or, or I'm sorry, if they don't record themselves as a yes or no, if they're just recorded as not voting, that has the same effect as a no, but later they can tell somebody, oh, I was just out of the room. I was going to vote yes, but I was out of the room. And they can tell somebody, well, I did vote no, it's the functional equivalent. And so it's a way to try to have it both ways. I always thought that was too cute by half. 
Um, you know, something you alluded to earlier was kind of this tension between the houses. And this is something we hear all the time of, you know, the Senate's holding bills or the assembly's holding bills because, you know, they're mad about something. You know, you were, you know, in leadership and, you know, appropriations chairman kind of, what was your experience with that? And, you know, as, as someone, you know, high ranking in, in the assembly, you know, is that something you ever got involved with kind of negotiating with the Senate or, you know, is it more just, uh, you know, lore? Yeah, so all the time. I mean, there were there were many, many ends of sessions where, um, you know, I was fortunate, I guess, or maybe cursed to be part of leadership during my entire seven years. I think maybe, maybe I take that back. Maybe my first term, I was not technically part of leadership. But so I was always, you know, even when I wasn't sure of appropriations, I was, there were there were times where, where um, you know, for whatever reason, there was some type of big negotiation, for example, on a water bond or something like that, where, you know, the the assembly needed to negotiate with the, with the Senate. And certainly when I was um, chair of appropriations, you know, yeah, there were many, many, many end of sessions where we found ourselves, you know, uh, going over to the Senate to try to say, hey, you know, you really didn't treat this member fairly or this bill deserves a hearing or, you know, uh, please let this bill out. And then the Senate would would give us their list of grievances. It was a, it was a festivus, uh, end of session festivus <laughs> session where their grievances would be aired and we would try our best to, you know, to try to keep the peace. I can tell you that um, that also brings up something that I think the public really doesn't understand about the legislative process. I talked a little bit earlier about something else that they don't understand, but what they don't understand, what, what I think the public doesn't understand a lot is how much the legislative process is a give and take and how much both houses need each other and how much individual lawmakers need other lawmakers. The best example that I would give is um, every once in a while, I would get called to the carpet or I would be questioned by a constituent about a marginal bill, not a bill that was you know, pure evil and not a bill that was pure good, but a bill that was really you know, sort of obviously open to many different opinions. And, and a constituent would say, why did you vote yes on that bill? Let me make my passionate case. And why did you vote yes on that bill? And I would say, well, you know, I saw both points and yeah, I, and I, I agree with you. Yeah, it probably wasn't that the greatest bill, but you know, you understand that the author is the chair of blah, blah, blah. And I needed that, that person to put forth the legislative agenda that I have done for your organization and for my district. And they would never get that. They would never understand that. But the best way that I could, you know, hope to help, you know, any member of the public that's watching this understand is that imagine you got elected because your key thing in your district is education reform you are so passionate about making sure that the kids in your area have the same access to higher education or, you know, just to solid K through 12 education that you feel that they deserve and that they're not getting. And then you just imagine that there is a bill that is authored by the chair of the key education committee that you need to get your key reform through next year or that year. You might give that person a little bit more consideration than otherwise, right? And that's why legislative power and being a chairperson is so important. It really helps you get your agenda done, and it helps the um, it helps your district in the long run. Uh, but but it's also something to where if that chair of that education committee authored a bad bill, you know your district might not always understand why you voted yes on it. Right. Uh, you know, I guess another interesting kind of uh, part of end of session is is the committee process, and you know how that kind of evolves towards the end. Kind of what what are some of your memories about some of the last minute committee? Uh, you would hold either as appropriations chair or, or one of the other committees you held, um, you know, in, in these last minute hearings. And did you ever have any like 
you know, on the floor committee hearings or, or quick committee hearings where, uh, you know, you, you had to do one real quick to, to hear a bill? Oh, yeah, great question. So, I mean, without getting into the complicated rules, you know, in many cases, the mechanism for making an amendment, especially without rule waivers through the committee process, and in many cases, you want to at least have the record show that a committee did hear a bill. But that being said, yeah, you know, um, many, many times, you know, committees would hold hurry meetings off the floor. You know, I remember gigantic committees that I served on, including appropriations being called in the rules room, which is, you know, Capital Insiders know is rather tiny. Right. And, um, you know, we would have, you know, uh, 50 sweating lobbyists in the room with us as we, you know, hastily considered something. Uh, you know, that that really always contributes to the, you know, the tension toward the end of session. It contributes to the the sense that things are hurried. And, you know, some would argue it doesn't always make for the most deliberate policymaking. Um, that is one of the grand challenges of the legislative process is, again, being flexible enough to do stuff, but also, you know, being deliberative enough to give stuff the consideration it deserves. So, yeah, you know, at the at the end of session, there's always last minute kind of committee hearings going on. And, and you know, as, as a chair, kind of what are some of your memories of, of kind of some of these last minute committee hearings or, you know, off the floor committees uh, that you kind of recall and, and, you know, that part of, you know, the legislative process and, uh, it can be kind of hectic and, uh, you know, kind of what are your, some of your good memories from that? Sure. So there are really two species of end of session committee hearings. There are those that are called by leadership or for technical reasons. That's because the rules either make it easier to amend a bill in the committee or because leadership wants a committee to, you know, to technically vet a bill. Right. And then there's the ones that are called by chair where, you know, they might call a bill back into committee because of some, perceived, uh, you know, impropriety by the author as it went through the process. And uh, sometimes that very act itself can be fatal to a bill. You know, they can call a bill back to the committee and then the committee might not meet. And it's a very quiet way to sort of kill a bill. But yeah, this type of thing happened all the time. You know, I remember many, many end of sessions where there would be, you know, um, we would have a gigantic committee, you know, committee the size of appropriations meeting in a tiny little room, like the rules committee room. And there'd be, you know, 50 sweaty lobbyists in there and, you know, 50 members of the public. And uh, we would do our best to do the people's business in a very rushed manner. You know, you know, it's interesting, I guess, as a committee chair, how do you keep track of, you know, what's going on at, at end of session to know whether to call a bill back to, to the, you know, your committee or, or not? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's a combination of good staffing plus the intervention of people who care about the bill, whether it's lobbyists or members of the public. You know, many times, it, the, the simplest way that a bill gets called back to committee is from a promise that was, uh, that was broken. You know, um, there, there are amendments, as you know, that are done you know, in writing before a committee meets. And then there are sort of, uh, you know, ad hoc amendments that are taken that day. You might have a member of a committee pipe up and say, you know, Mr. Gatto, I will vote for this bill if you tweak this little clause here having to do with, you know, the background check on blah, 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 right? And then the, com the, the member presenting the bill will promise on the microphone, yes, I will make this uh, amendment in the next committee. Right. And sometimes that does not occur. And um, so in those cases, you know, the, the committee chair will often call that bill back to committee. It does need the, the blessing of leadership to do that because it is a floor vote that occurs. Uh, different speakers at different times have been, um, have been, you know, sometimes a little hesitant to do that at the end of session because they feel like, you, you know, the drama is already pretty thick and the tension's out there. 
why are we going to do this again? Why am I going to make it look like the floor is calling the bill back to committee? But other leaders have said, you know, look, it's the committee chairperson's prerogative and we're going to respect that. I can tell you that sometimes a committee chairperson can kill a bill on a floor, you know, just for, for with, without even uh, needing to call it back to committee. There was one time where a member of the legislature made me a promise on the microphone. He completely violated it, did not make the promise amendments that were conditioned or that were a condition of the bill getting out of the committee or passing my committee. And so I got up on the last day of session and, and when the bill was presented on the floor and I had never in my seven year tenure spoken against a fellow democratic assembly members bill on the floor. That was a tradition and unwritten rule of the house that was drilled into me by Speaker Perez, which yeah. is when you are a member of leadership, you can talk against the Senate bill, you can talk against the bill from the other party, but we don't talk about, we don't talk ill about a, um, you know, bill from our caucus in our house. I had never done that. I got up and I said, um, members, I'm asking for a no vote. The author did not fulfill a promise he made in my committee, and any of you who are our committee chairs know how important that is, and his bill failed miserably. And so, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the committee chairs, you know, they, they've got hard powers and soft powers, and a lot of them, you know, I think it's important for them to make sure that they, they enforce those. Right. Kind of coming in as, as, a, as a younger member, kind of, do you, do you recall some like instances where you, you kind of saw something happen at the end of session? You're like, you know, taking notes, you know, you know, procedurally of, of how to maneuver and, and kind of operate? Yeah. You know, I mean, procedure is, um, you know, if, if you understand procedure and you're the one or maybe five members who pays attention to procedure, procedure can be a very, very good friend of yours at the end of session. There were a couple times where, where um, you know, um, people really didn't understand the rules of unanimous consent. There's a lot that the House, that, that either House or legislature can do by unanimous consent. And the presiding officer will say, you know, uh, by unanimous consent, we, we do blah, blah, blah without objection. And then, you know, if you're, if you're a member, you can just say, I object, right? And then consent is not unanimous. Uh, there was one time at the end of, toward the end of session where I was presiding and, um, there was a member of the legislature who was going to pull a pretty, you know, kind of crappy stunt, we thought, and um, had called reporters to the chamber to do it. And um, she had this big, complicated prop that she wanted to hold up like they do on the floor of Congress. And she said, you know, I, I want permission to use a prop. And I said, deny. And she's like, oh, my God, you can't do that, blah, 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 blah. And they put it to a vote, blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, I just want to clarify that. You know, consent to use a prop is done by unanimous consent. And uh, I'm the presiding officer, but I'm still a member of the body and I don't give my consent. Right. And she was like shocked. <laughs> and, you know, so, I mean, just knowing the rules, the rules is so important. And if you know the rules, you can, you know, you can prevail on a lot of things where you otherwise couldn't. You know, as, as we talked about, you know, earlier in your appropriations podcast, you know, appropriation suspense is coming up. Um, you know, some bills will get in or out. Um, is there any chicanery going on with, you know, people trying to avoid appropriations, trying to avoid it suspense where they're amending things kind of at the deadline at the last minute, trying to kind of get around appropriations and, uh, you know, is there any, I guess, strategy to that, or is that something you ever notice? Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, look for viewers, if there's a viewer who's for whatever reason, just watching this episode and you haven't had a chance to view the episode where you and I talked about the appropriations process. I highly recommend it. Of course, I'm biased, but, um, <laughs> you would too. Um, but but yeah, I mean, look, you know, one of the things that members often do is they will, uh, 
try to cut out any type of cost in a bill that would otherwise go through appropriations. Or in some rare cases, they'll try to, uh, you know, the, the committee will cut out the cost or the, you know, or, or the member will do it at a as a request to the appropriations committee, but then they'll somehow try to get it back in later. You know, I always noticed that, my staff noticed it when I was chair of appropriations and we would, you know, unceremoniously kill those bills because I think it's really important. I mean, look, I mean, I think most of the state would agree that the legislature has a reputation for spending money a little too much uh, or too profitably, if that's a word. Um, um, and, and so therefore, you know, it's very important that the checks and balances we have on the spending process be observed. And so, yeah, when I was chair, we would always try to kill those bills if anybody tried to do that type of uh, chicanery. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess what, in the past few years, we've had the, the three day in print rule passed. Um, so now basically any, any amendment or any bill has to sit in print for three days, kind of what, what are your observation on how that's changed the end of session and, and kind of moving forward? Do you think, you know, that's a good change or not? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because in my experience, the, uh, the 72 hour rule or the three day in print rule was one of the most significant amendments that occurred during my tenure. And it really is one of the most significant amendments that has occurred to the legislature I'd submit in its history. Before, you know, we would get asked by leadership to vote on bills that were hot off the printer. In many cases, the they were not on our online systems at all yet. They were not on the computerized system. They were not on the public websites. No lobbyists had read them or very few lobbyists had read them. No member of the public had read them and no lawmakers had read them. And we would be handed something to vote on it. It would still be warm from being copied right. by the copier. And, you know, it's the old joke. I mean, this occurs in the federal Congress as well, where, you know, I believe that there was one time where Nancy Pelosi said something like, we need to vote on the bill so we can read it or something like that. We need to, you know. Exactly. And we would get asked to do that, you know, 10 times per session, where it'd be the end of the House origin deadline or the budget bill would be voted on or it would be the end of session. And we'd be asked to vote on something that was just completely not vetted, except for the five or six people who had drafted it. The 72 hour rule of course changed all that. It requires that a bill be in print and the final amendments be in print 72 hours before being voted on. And so these young whippersnappers in the assembly and the, and the Senate have it great now because you know they, they, they can take a deep breath and they can know that they're gonna cast a vote on things that, that uh, you know, really um, at least some people out there have read and it's up to them to have actually tried to follow the amendments and, and taken advantage of the 72 hour rule and made sure that they know that we're voting on. There were budget votes that I remember, I mean like AB 109 that to this day I profoundly regret. This was the, the Jerry Brown realignment. I was put in the budget, I wanna say in 2010 or 2011 where you know I profoundly regret it. it. We were not given a chance to read it. We were not given much of a chance to reflect on it at all at least in final form. The concept had been talked about for years, I grant that. But, um, you know, I thoroughly, you know, the devil's in the details and I thoroughly regret that vote. And, um, and uh, you know, there's a long list of things like that. So it's much better, for, I think, for open government that we now have a 72 hour rule in effect. Interesting. Are there, I guess, any memorable end of session plays that, you know, you did yourself uh, that you can share with us? Um, gosh, the ones, the ones that really stick out to me are, um, really profound end of session losses. I mean, you know, I took a lot of, I, I took two memorable lumps at the end of session and maybe maybe we have time to talk about one of them. And that was, um, you know, during my final year in office, I had been working all year on a proposal to, to disband the PUC and make it oh, right. something 
at, make it a variety of different agencies that serve the public better. My theory was that if, you know, people have complaints about their cable company, maybe going through a three-year legislative process before the PUC was not the best use of their time, but maybe they could call Consumer Affairs and Consumer Affairs would be more nimble in dealing with things like that. Right. Maybe that the PUC, you know, gosh, was having a hard time dealing with wildfires and uh, exploding pipelines and gas leaks and right. things like that, which by the way, turned out to be very prescient. You know, you know, I've had many talks with policymakers who have told me that they regret that we did not disband the PUC in 2016. Uh, but at the end of session in 2016, you know, the bill, my legislation had still not gone through the Senate for a vote. And um, frankly, there was a group of senators in conjunction with Governor Jerry Brown who acted to, to kill the legislation. They, they acted to run out the clock. That is um, you know, a profound uh, regret that I have that, me, uh, that, that my team and me were not able to get that through the process. And it's also you know, something that I think what ended up, you know, history showed was bad for California because it was only you know one or two years after my proposal that the PUC was roundly criticized for not being nimble enough to deal with wildfires and for not having the specialization to deal with these issues of utility finance and wildfires and bankruptcies. And uh, you know, so those concerns that were raised in that legislation continue to this day. Um, but that that's you know look that is a powerful. It's obviously not applicable in years like this where this is the first year of a two-year session because the clock doesn't really run out on bills. They can become two-year bills and be considered next year. Right. But the most potent thing about end of session that we haven't talked about is at the end of a two-year session, that's it. And if you're terming out of office, which I was, it's really it. I mean, it's, you know, you're at the mercy of somebody else bringing up that idea. So, you know, when I think of end of sessions, you know, the thing that immediately comes to mind when you asked me that was just that really painful loss that I took that day and, um, you know, look, you live and learn and um, you hope somebody else brings up the, the mantra of reform. For a while, Governor Gavin Newsom was talking with me about bringing up those reforms, but, you know, then he got so busy on other things, the COVID pandemic and, um, and other matters. But, um, but I think there are a lot of people in the Capitol, including the governor, who profoundly support what I was trying to do in 2016. And who knows who might bring it up in 2021. All right. Well, good. If you have any, I guess, advice in, in, in closing for any member or staffer who's, you know, working on an end of session play, kind of, what would you say to them? What's important? Well, you know, the, um, the best advice that, that I got came from a lobbyist by the name of George Miller. And he is, um, you know, sort of a salty character, a capital veteran, a good guy, really funny guy, but just a dry, cutting sense of humor. Right. During the foreclosure crisis, there was a bill that that came up and it went through appropriations. I was not the chair at the time. And it was really a bad bill. It was really hastily drafted, you know, as we talked about. There were provisions in it that were really poorly conceived. And the bill failed in appropriations. And then the speaker's staff came in and the speaker himself called some members of appropriations and gently requested that they change their vote. Not that people who had not voted at all come in and vote for it, but actually people who had voted no, who requested that they vote yes. And uh, George was following the bill very closely and, uh, you know, and, and so were a bunch of us that really wanted to have a good product, a good final product for the people of the state of California. And uh, 
you know, the bill was passed in the bad form and uh, all of us were like kind of gathered together, like crying in our soup. Oh my God, this is awful. This is bad policy, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he said to us, he goes, it wasn't over with the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor, which I believe is a line from a movie, but, yeah. uh, but obviously. Yeah, I think well, it's from Dumb and Dumber, right? Purposely, yeah. Des- yeah. <laughs> purposely designed for, for yeah. humor and, um, and uh, you know, to, to make people realize that, you know, all is not lost. The legislative process is ongoing. It's continual. Very little is final. You know, you might feel that your very important bill died in the end of one session, but if you keep working at it, you know, it can become law. There are absolute examples of this. I mean, look, Gil Cedillo worked on one bill. He introduced the same bill for 11 years, and finally he got what he wanted, right? And so, you know, with tenaciousness and with a good idea, you know, even though it might feel like all is lost, right. uh, you know, just have a sense of humor about things. Take the example of George Miller to heart and just uh, just relax and take a deep breath and keep putting forth your ideas in the marketplace and maybe someone else will take them. We know you got to go, Mike. So thank you so much. Good advice and uh, good luck with the broken pipe. Always great to be with you, Jarrett. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for watching Sacktown Talks. Make sure you click the button below and subscribe and hit that notification bell so you can keep up with all our news and updates. Some are called dreamers.